This is the Patch Kincaid series, Book One, The Kennedy Paradox. The Kennedy Paradox, Chapter One. Interstate 80, Northern California, July 17, 1986, 3.30 p.m. Consider time travel a risky venture. In July of 1986, Patch Kincaid turned 30 and had twice traveled back in time. They first sent him to 1976, retrograde's elastic effect of being snapped back to the present returned him safely to Sector 13 in four hours and had garnered him the distinction as being the first man to successfully survive a trip through time. Classified Sector Report 3517 stated that 11 men had died in previous attempts. The public would never know about those deaths, nor would they celebrate his triumph. Massive power outages resulted when the electric grid overloaded during retrograde. Patch just thought himself damn lucky to have survived, but like absorbing a mystical aphrodisiac, he stepped into the chamber again and ventured back to 1979. His orders were the same as the first trip. The threat of changing time, the paradox, yielded a specific set of instructions. Do nothing, touch nothing. Let the video capture a Midwestern cornfield seven years back in time from the embarking chamber at Sector 13. No one had yet solved the question as to whether someone transported back in time could actually change history. For the first 10 years of his life, he and his family lived in Japan. His dad, Colonel Kincaid, worked on a variety of classified projects. As a boy, he dreamed about traveling back in time as he watched the jets taking off and landing with his dad at the naval base. At age four, a baseball line drive rocketed into the stands, smacking him in the eye. Only the quick action of a serviceman retrieving ice from a nearby restaurant saved his vision. A cloth patch protected his eye for weeks, but for the rest of his life, Robert Garrison Kincaid Jr. carried a thin two-inch scar under his right eye and the nickname Patch. Being around the aircraft at the naval base steered Patch toward becoming a pilot. The boys in school would tell stories about the spy plane that was housed on the base. He knew he wanted to fly high, fly fast, and even leave the earth. Patch outlined stories about going back in time. But when the old Soviet Union brought down the spy plane in 1960, he learned its name, the U-2. In high school back in Kansas, he tried to stitch Einstein's theories in quantum mechanics into his imagined homemade time travel device. There had to be a way to go back in time like the time machine. As a man, he settled for flying high-speed aircraft and then secret missions into space. Leaving the bounds of Earth might just be the closest experience to journeying back through time. The government conceived Project High Platform at the same time as the shuttle program in the early 1970s. Patch watched Al Devins and Rick Petrie roar into space on the first shuttle in 1978. He had to keep secret the project he had been a part of since 1977. The shuttle landed successfully at Edwards Dry Lake in Southern California, but Patch Kincaid drove north to a hidden military base called Catapult 35. Since the beginning of the space program, the military implemented a secondary program 
to gain a surreptitious military presence around the Earth and the Moon. He joined 26 other astronauts in being launched high above the Earth to construct the Military Readiness Platform, MRP. Patch worked closely with the facility that remained behind the dark side of the Moon. All of the space flights, traveling at almost 18,000 miles per hour, and the isolation on the MRP facilities could not prepare him for the perils of time travel. He initially rebuffed the assignment to the Sector 13 experiments. An intelligence agency physicist, Ray Menkowitz, spoke with him for five hours in San Francisco. Menkowitz constantly smoked a cigar, told Patch he did not have the guts to attempt time travel. Menkowitz branded Patch as unpatriotic and selfish. He stressed that time travel might have military implications. Then he extolled Patch's bravery and expertise in space. He successfully signed Patch up for a project that would be burrowed away from the general public. Sector 13 demanded never-ending toil and high energy levels that neither rewarded achievement nor granted much free time. Patch worked on the high-powered accelerators, participated in constant testing, and even went around the country soliciting funds from prominent lobbyists and those in power. But in less than a month, he would leave the project and return to civilian life to test new commercial aircraft for Norcross Air. He cornered Mankiewicz after the trip back to 1979 and easily secured a few weeks away. He met with Norcross in Chicago and stopped to see his father's grave in Kansas and then headed for Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. The cooler, fresh mountain air flared through the open window as Patch maneuvered his five-speed Suburban up a long stretch above the Truckee River. Kate had finished her doctorate. In San Francisco, Patch would ask her to marry him. Over a month had passed since he had stared into her earthy green eyes and touched her long, dark hair. In his mind, he replayed their making love back in her New York apartment and could almost feel her tight body. He smiled at the thought, turned on the radio, and scanned the dial for the Kennedy program. He found it on a scratchy AM station. The former president maintained the most listened to political information program in the United States about what the foreign policy of the United States should be. To make it clear, we should be the force of the world, which is strive for peace, work together with emerging governments. Yeah, well, that's all well and good. We need to stand up to our enemies. Do you have any idea what this means? Uh, yes, I've had a uh, few years of uh, public service. You should have taken the general's advice and bombed Cuba during your administration and uh, started uh, World War III with 90 million Americans dead in a matter of minutes. So let me add, if the caller is still there, right here, during the eight years of the uh, Kennedy administration, we uh, became fully aware that by putting 100% trust in uh, all military advice, one to a certain mindset. The generals of the CIA were in favor of the Vietnam action. A Vietnam, uh, to address your assertion, was not in the uh, general interest of the United States. And I think it was the feeling in 1965 when we began bringing our forces back. In 1963, I signed NSAM 263, beginning the uh, withdrawal of 1,000 troops from Vietnam. This, of course, was just the uh, first step to total withdrawal in 1965. Even President Nixon said it was a mistake to bring the boys back. 
he uh, said that at the time, yes, and I won't belabor that point, but I will say that reaching for peace and talking with the Russians led to the uh, final uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and led to terrorism. There are ramifications uh, to every move on the world stage in the post-Cold War era, and uh, we have to adjust to those realities. But we uh, also must realize that our actions in the long run can lead to terrorism by supplying unwarranted armaments to warring parties. Nixon would disagree. I, I'm sure he would, and uh, will. We'll have an ample opportunity uh, to discuss the ramifications with the President Nixon when he is my guest for all four hours on the Thursday. We'll pause now and be back in the next half hour. You're listening to the Kennedy Program on the World News Network. Pat wrapped the FM switch and sent the channel search flying. He sat back and chugged through the serene Rocky Mountain expanse. The last caller had correctly targeted terrorism. His own briefings show groups and alliances forged in the post-Cold War era as the real enemies of the United States. Prodigious secrecy surrounded Sector 13's possible military applications, and Mankiewicz's talks with the intelligence people concerning terrorists in Sector 13 frightened everyone. The year 1986 had already brought several terrorist scares and one near disaster. A radical splinter group had almost succeeded in planting anthrax in the greater Pittsburgh water supply. The general public never knew elite forces had killed five terrorists at the city's filtration plant. Other incidents included dismantled pipe bombs under cars, pipe explosives on bridges, shootings, and airliners exploding. The nuclear threat was spent plutonium readily available from rogue reactors and renegade scientists as well as paramilitary personnel ready to build bombs had proliferated into a public frenzy. Unless Menkowitz bothered him again, Patch could forget terrorism and his Sector 13 responsibilities for the next week. He gazed out the open window at the majestic jagged peaks, scattered with towering evergreens tapering down like silent soldiers guarding the rock-carved canyon. This spaciousness contrasted with the claustrophobic life of Sector 13's underground facility in Colorado. He tried to forget terrorism and his job. Kate would meet him in Golden Gate Park. He planned it perfectly, flying her in from New York. An outdoor scene filled his thoughts. Two violinists and a noted flutist under the trees overlooking the bay, and a fully catered meal spread across a linen-covered tablecloth. As they dined outside, he would present her with a sparkling diamond secured by one of Mankiewicz's buddies from South Africa. After San Francisco, they would drive east and spend tomorrow night under the towering sequoias in Yosemite. The cellular buzz from his second phone broke the mountain silence. Patch winced at the bulky unlisted mobile phone on the passenger seat. Mankiewicz had promised three hours ago not to call him again. But how did he get this number? Patch wanted to let it ring, but reluctantly grabbed the phone from its box and pushed the green button. Ray, what the hell? How did you know it was me, Patch? Who else is such a pain in the ass? Well, that's true. Patch held the wheel with one hand and rolled his eyes as he neared the mountain crest. Mankiewicz's gravelly voice punctuated the transmission. How's the uh, scenery up there, Captain? Ray, leave me alone. I think you have your damn watch set on a timer. Just beeped. And now it's time to bother Kincaid again. The signal weakened. 
timer. That's not a bad idea. Listen up, Patch. You need to get to a land phone. Ray, this is my unlisted phone. At least I thought it was. I must be 50 miles from a regular phone. You already passed Truckee and Tahoe, and now you're approaching the Rainbow Bridge near Donna Summit. I just got off I-80 to get some peace on the old road. I swear you'd track me next time I take a leak. Well, we can do that. Patch grinned slightly as he gazed downriver through the slotted concrete bridge. The evergreen slopes above the river spread like an artist's foreground into the magnificent deep distant blue mountains. Get lost, Ray. Patch. What? Have a nice day. The line went silent. Patch sneered and then smiled at the phone. He shifted up the rock ledge. The bridge and the river formed behind him in the side mirror. Somehow he thought of his dad. His father had died in 1979. They buried him with full honors in Kansas. In many ways, Mankiewicz had become a father figure at Sector 13. As a physicist, he worked with Hollis Leminski and Dr. Alexander Moon, quantitizing electrons and electromagnetic fields. Then he expanded his work by teleporting particles through time. His success led to a classified construction of accelerators to move matter back and forth through time. His intelligence credentials landed him the top Sector 13 job in the early 1970s. While his decisions could be reasoned out with the precision of an advanced computer, he always empathized with his people. That empathy allowed him to motivate and steer his subordinates on the proper course. Patch trusted him without question. He looked skyward. Okay, Uncle Ray, you win. Under the outline of the rock and fir-treed mountains, Patch rolled into a dusty lot housing a dilapidated gas station with dirty dark windows and a long porch. He slowed beyond a set of antiquated red and white pumps and stopped at the next phone booth. A heavy guy in denim farmer's overalls lounged next to a bulky red rusted coke machine. Patch left the suburban store open, engine running, and entered the booth. He quickly dialed Mankiewicz, but the connecting took time. The porch guy's folded hands moved up and down slowly on his oversized stomach. Patch had difficulty seeing beyond the porch's darkened screen door and reflective station windows. Mankiewicz. Great view up here, Ray. Only one thing, I can't enjoy the river. I can't enjoy the mountains. Some pain in the ass keeps annoying me. You're damn lucky I just don't pull you out of there right now, Patch. There's a ton of stuff coming over the intel. Patch tilted his head back. I don't care. Apparently they're searching New York City for a possible nuclear device. Mankiewicz had a crammed cigar in his mouth again. There are reports that other cities are being searched right now. I was afraid for your safety and with you meeting your fiancé in San Francisco tomorrow. He actually mentioned San Francisco? No. Only New York. Tell me you're making this up, Ray. Thank God she's on her way to San Francisco. Mankiewicz talked to his people inside Sector 13's mountain complex and then strayed from the phone for nearly a minute. The sun sizzled the nape of Patch's neck as his heartbeat soared. He paced around the booth. Ray, I'm here frying like a desert lizard, waiting for you to tell me if they're blowing up New York. Mankiewicz finished up with the group. Patch, not an alert or anything. Tom just says it's a precautionary measure. You and your precautionary measures. Sounds damn serious to me. I'm heading west. 
You should have told me all this on the cell phone. Cell phones can be monitored, Patch. Look how I found your position. I don't see terrorist groups having the expertise to pull off something like this. Is that all? Can I go have fun now? Mankiewicz chuckled. Thought you ought to know there might be problems in other cities. Patch, you may live for risk, but the rest of us are mere human beings. Odds are with us, but if they go on alert or something, call me. Oh, I wouldn't think of breaking up your little party. Right. Patch set the phone back on the hook and wished he could relax like the man sleeping on the porch. He stepped into the Suburban, shut the door and spun back on the highway. As he placed the reflective sunglasses over his eyes, diminishing the glare, he visualized a brilliant orange explosion and mushroom cloud rising over some American metropolis, sucking up the imploded buildings, streets, and people into a huge billowing fireball. Such far-fetched notions rattled his imagination as much as time travel.